Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Man, let's go. So Jesus last time calls his 12 disciples, his apostles. And as it says in Matthew 11, after he makes an end of commanding them, Jesus himself then departs and goes to teach and preach in their cities. While this is all going down, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, got picked up by the cops and is now sitting in jail. Don't worry, he doesn't, didn't do anything wrong. He just made the wrong people in power angry. And it's a whole thing we'll go into in a later lesson. But John is sitting in jail and doubts about Jesus start to creep in. John the Baptist, one of the greatest prophets of all time, as Jesus says, begins to feel doubts. No, it's normal if it happens, when it happens. It's going to be part of the process. So honestly, part of it is just he's got nothing to do but let his thoughts cycle through in this endless circle. And that's what begins to happen. So here's what John does. He calls two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus with the question, are you the one that is prophesied to come or should we look for another? So these two disciples go down and they, they go straight to Jesus and they, they say, are you the one that is prophesied to come? Are you the Messiah? Are you the true king? It's a straight up question. Or should we look for another? And so Jesus, being Jesus, doesn't answer them. Instead, in that same hour while they're there, he cures all sorts of people of plagues, of evil spirit. He even gives a blind person their sight. And then he turns back to these two messengers and he says, go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard and how that the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. To the poor, the gospel is preached. No. I see what you're doing here, Jesus. Did you catch it? Now, this is why it's so important that you have studied the Old Testament last year. Because what Jesus just did echoes all the way back to Hannah's prophecy of the true king coming in 1 Samuel chapter 2. When he, this first idea of a king coming is mentioned. And she says, he raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the beggar from the dunghill to set him among the princes to make them inherit the throne of glory. Jesus right there, to the poor, the gospel is preached. To anybody who's tuned in, they'd be like, ah, I see what's going on. And it definitely is echoing Isaiah. Back in Isaiah 35, blind eyes will be opened, deaf ears unstopped, lame men and women will leap like deer and the voiceless break into song. Or even the one uh, Isaiah Jesus has used before in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me, the anointed one, to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is interesting because Jesus doesn't actually answer their direct question, are you the one? But at the same time, he does. Like, why is he like this? I'm really asking. Why is there never really a straight answer? I I don't have an answer for you here. I'm, I'm honestly asking this question. Why does he operate the way he does? Think about that a little bit. 
Hi, that's interesting, right? So after this experience, um, Jesus and his disciples depart to another place. And, um, well, sorry, the the two disciples depart and Jesus is there with all the people that that saw the disciples, right? And Jesus goes off about John because John's on his mind. And he says, you went out to the wilderness to see John. You didn't go to see some like weak sauce reed that is shaken by any, every wind. You didn't see a guy clothed in soft clothing, like soft clothing belonging king's houses. What did you go to see when you went to see John? You went to see a prophet. And I'm telling you, he was more than a prophet. He was who they were writing about in Malachi when they say, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before me. He's whispering again, fulfilling prophecy. And he's like, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven shall be greater than he. Oh, this is just again, layers upon layers, right? John is amazing. Jesus is is, um, below John, baptized by John, is greater than John, like some complexity there. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take by force. John the Baptist is in jail right now. And it's always been the case. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias. <laughs> like he doesn't get any more clear than that. Which was, which was for to come. Man, that's com- uh, that's cumbersome language right there. But he's basically saying John the Baptist was the Elias, was the Elijah prophesied. Now, Elias is just the Greek form of Elijah here. Elias prophesied by Malachi. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But you know what you guys are like? You guys are like a bunch of kids sitting at the playground, calling back and forth saying, hey, I played a song. And you, have, you didn't dance. Dude, we, we play act at a funeral and you didn't lament. That's an interesting parable just right off the cuff. He's like, what are you guys like? He's like, you guys are like kids saying, hey, I sang a song, but you guys didn't dance. John came neither eating nor drinking. And you say, he's got a devil. Me, I come eating and drinking and you're like, this guy is gluttonous, a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. There's no pleasing you guys, basically. Man, that's interesting. We have piped unto you and you have not danced. Jesus is basically exposing this idea that they have an expectation for God and his prophets. But God and his prophets don't meet this expectation. God is not who they think think he is. And and by extension, God is not who you think he is. I want you to look inside yourself. It's easy to point fingers at the these people in Jesus's time and say like they don't get it, but we get it. No, 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 no. What boxes do you put around God and what expectations do you have for God? I want you to examine them afresh. 
Like, when have you played the role that he is describing where you say, I, I piped, I did what I was supposed to, I was a good boy, I was a good girl, but you haven't danced. That's interesting. Watch how Jesus deliberately subverts their expectations. See, there, there's a certain of the scribes and the Pharisees that said, Master, we would see a sign from thee. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. <laughs> Dude, talk about fire. Talk about getting salty. We talk so much in our, in our culture about safety, verbal safety, avoiding triggers for people. Jesus seems very unconcerned with that. And I know some of you are going to come back and say, no, this is a situational thing. He's talking to the Pharisees. But that's not the case. Jesus spits verbal fire at Pharisees and his disciples. He spits it at earnest seekers that are outside of the church. Everyone, maybe safety is overrated, man. And I don't know. I want you to consider it. They have this expectation. We have this expectation, but he deliberately subverts it here. Now, back to what he's saying. These guys are asking for a sign like a prophet will like Moses smite the rock and water will come forth. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Now, I think there's a couple of things to note on this. First, Joseph Smith says this. He says, Jesus taught that he who seeketh a sign is an adulterous person. And that principle is eternal, undeviating and firm as the pillars of heaven. For whenever you see a man seeking after a sign, you may set it down that this is an adulterous man. When I was preaching in Philadelphia, a Quaker called out for a sign. I told him to be still. After the sermon, he asked for a, again for a sign. I told the congregation the man was an adulterer. <laughs> Joseph, I love him. Um, that a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And that the Lord had said unto me that uh, in Revelation that any man who wanted a sign was an adulterous person. Then somebody from the crowd cries out, It's true! For I caught him in the very act. Afterwards, the man uh, confessed and he was baptized. End quote. So there's one interpretation of what Jesus is saying. And a second one is that this goes back to the Old Testament when they worshiped other gods and were called an adulterous generation. Basically, Jesus is saying, God is right in front of you, but you want to worship something else. Uh, he, he's pulling on that very Old Testament string. And then he goes on, he says, you won't be given any other signs except the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is an interesting choice because if you remember, like Jonah is not that great of a prophet. Like he runs away from God. He gets angry when people actually repent. He's kind of a jerk. So fascinating to me that Jesus uses Jonah as, the, his, as his choice, right? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall, shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear wisdom of Solomon and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, I don't know if you caught that, 
But Jesus is straight lighting them on fire again. That is a huge burn. Okay? We usually focus on the fact that it's he's going to be in the tomb for three days and then resurrect. But this part about the people of Nineveh judging them, this is fascinating. Nineveh is the capital of Babylon, which since basically Noah's time has been the symbol in among believers of Satan and his kingdom. Jesus is saying that they will be placed in a position of authority above you, good members of the church, because they changed their ingrained beliefs. Do not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is not only talking to the people them, but he is talking to you, church members. It applies to you right now. If you can't change your ingrained beliefs, if you're so stuck on the thought that this is just the way it is, well, you're going to be in for a stunning turn of events, okay? Jesus is saying, you've got to be able to be flexible. You've got to be able to change. This is a, a central root tenet of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And watch how he, their expectations are just totally turned on their heads. And, and, and I want you to ask yourself, like, what are you hearing from the Holy Ghost right now? Which one of your beliefs about God? Which one of your habits? What are, what are some of your cultural traditions or your things that you're just like, this is just the way it is that needs to be taken and shaken and reexamined? Consider it. Jesus really is trying to shake you loose from your routine. If you are so familiar that it is a rut, he is trying to slap you out of that. And as Jesus spake, a a certain Pharisee asked him to come to his house and eat dinner with him. So Jesus goes in and sits down to the meal. But when the, the Pharisee saw it, he was astounded because Jesus did not wash his hands before dinner. Now, make no mistake about this. This is a deliberate provocation on Jesus's part. Jesus knows the ritual. He knows the routine and he is deliberately subverting it. Just think about your own life. I, and I, I'm telling you, the Holy Ghost is telling you right now, where would Jesus walk into your life and deliberately poke? And you'd be like, oh no, that's my tender spot. Don't poke there. Oh, just think about that. And Jesus says to the Pharisee, he's like, you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your insides are full of ravening. Ravening means greedy, hungry, or predatory and wickedness. Wickedness is a, a, the, a word from the old English for wizard, actually. And the, the actual Hebrew word from Strong's Concordance for the same thing is ponria. It means depravity or malice. He says, basically, Jesus is saying you are greedy and full of malice. Malice is hatred, spite, meanness, nastiness, cruelty. It's the intention to do ill will. The problem that Jesus has with Pharisees and with this Pharisee in particular is not that they struggle with 
how do you say, some of the, the moral sins, it's that they're mean. This again applies to us. It is perfectly possible to be a quote unquote good Latter-day Saint. Someone who goes to church, someone who pays tithing, someone who's never drank coffee or had a sip of beer and be completely mean. And Jesus has serious problems with this. I like how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, finally, though I have had to speak at some length about sex, I want to make it as clear as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not on sex. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they're the least bad of all the sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong the pleasure of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting gossip, right? The pleasures of power and the pleasures of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why the cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than the prostitute. Of course, it's better to be neither, end quote. Back to Jesus. Ye fools. You can't say that, Jesus. Oh, he just did. You fools. (laughs) Did not he that made which is without make that which is within also. But rather give alms of such things as you have and behold, all things are clean unto you. Woe, woe is just like extreme sorrow. Woe unto you Pharisees. And again, keep in mind the Pharisees, like you're so easy targets for us to throw stones at. Stop thinking that they are other. The Pharisees are you. They're all of us trying to be good boys and good girls and rule followers here. And Jesus is calling us out. He's talking to you. It's like you pay your tithing, but you pass over love of God. Oh, man. Woe unto you. You like looking good. You like showing up to church and having people see that you are at church. You love talking and greeting people in the market. Woe unto you hypocrites. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, you're, you're calling us out too. He's like, yes. Woe unto you lawyers. For you laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and ye yourself touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Man, again, careful. So frequently we look at others and we, we see how they're not doing well, how they, 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 they aren't raising their kids right, or they, they aren't living up to a certain standard. And we, we look at them and we point fingers in our soul. And Jesus is like, you are in trouble. Woe unto you. Because you're not lifting a finger to, to help. 
And I really think we've got to adjust our thinking on this. Instead of thinking God is a God of judgment and that it is our role to to help him administer that judgment, he has given us the role of light bearers as image bearers. Jesus is saying our role is to lift burdens, not pile on burdens. Stop judging yourselves first and stop judging others second and then go do some actual good. Get out of your heads and lift up. Ye have taken away the key of knowledge and you hindered others from meeting it. They are missing the mark. They're trying so hard to be good that they're, they're not good. Trying so hard to be obedient that they're not Christ-like. Listen to what Jesus expects. He says, He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. There's the real invitation. Stop worrying. Stop worrying if you're going to make it. Stop worrying if you're good enough. Stop. It's not even your job. Stop. Stop. I don't even want you to think about it for the rest of the day. When it comes up, just let it go. Stop worrying what other people think about you. Just lose your life. Let it go. All these things in your life that you're resisting, that you want to be different, that you want to be better, let it go. Stop. Accept the world as it is. Accept the people as they are. Accept yourself as you are. And as you do, trust Jesus and go out and do good. I know you feel heavy. I know things are imperfect. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm meek. I'm lowly of heart. And you will find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He really means this. I'm, he really means this. Life is not hard. It can be easy. Uh, it can be easy when your life is a train wreck, when your kids aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, when you are consistently ill-tempered and aggravated, when you like are continually fail at being the, the type of person you want to be. You can simultaneously come to Jesus and find rest. Your days, every day, average days, can be magic. We are not talking about ethics. We are talking about religion. We are talking about binding your soul to divinity and that spirit and power will flow through your lives. It will. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's a real promise. 
You will be shocked if you stop worshiping yourself and you start doing the mental and emotional work to trust Jesus and to cast your cares on him. Make no mistake, it is work, but it's a different type of work than you've been doing. You've been trying to save yourself and I want you to start trying to let Jesus save you. It's a different work, but it's powerful. So there are your options. Do things your way and feel the constant struggle and disappointment that life doesn't lift up to your, your mark or your expectations. Or trust Jesus and it will be light. Dude, I love how Elder Uchtdorf expresses this mandate to trust even when things aren't what we expect. Uh, this is one of my favorite stories of his of all time. He says, the, the story is about a girl named Ava. There are two important things you should know about Ava. One is that she was 11 years old in the story. And the other is she absolutely positively did not want to go and live with her great aunt Rose. Not at all. No way. But Ava's mother was going to have a surgery that required a lengthy recovery. So Ava's parents were sending her to spend a summer with great aunt Rose. In Ava's mind, there were a thousand reasons why this was a bad idea. For one thing, it would mean being away from her mother. It would mean leaving her family and her friends. And besides, she didn't even know great aunt Rose. She was quite comfortable, thank you very much, right where she was. But no amount of arguing or eye rolling could change the decision. So Ava packed up a suitcase and took the long drive with her father to great aunt Rose's house. From the moment Ava stepped inside the house, she hated it. Everything was so old. Every inch was packed with old books, strange colored bottles, and plastic bins spilling over with beads, bows, and buttons. Great Aunt Rose lived there alone. She'd never married. The only other inhabitant was a gray cat who liked to find the highest point in every room and perch there staring like a hungry tiger at everything below. Even the house itself seemed lonely. It was out in the countryside where the houses are far apart. No one Ava's age lived within a mile and a half. Excuse me, half a mile. That made Ava feel lonely too. At first, she didn't pay much attention to great Aunt Rose. She mostly thought about her mother. Sometimes she would stay awake at night, praying with all her soul that her mother would be well. And though it didn't happen right away, Ava began to feel that God was watching over her mother. Word finally came that the operation was a success. And now all that was left for Ava to do was endure till the end of the summer. Oh, she hated enduring. With her mind now at ease about her mother, Ava began to notice great Aunt Rose a little more. She was a large woman. Everything about her was large. Her voice, her smile, her personality. It wasn't easy for her to get around, but she always sang and laughed while she worked. And the sound of her laughter filled the house. Every night she sat down on her overstuffed sofa, pulled out her scriptures and read out loud. And as she read, she sometimes made comments like, Oh, I, oh, he shouldn't have done that. Or, what wouldn't I give to have been there? Or, isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever heard? And every evening, as the two of them knelt by Ava's bed to pray, Great Aunt Rose would say the most beautiful prayers, thanking her Heavenly Father for blue jays and spruce trees and sunsets and the stars and the wonder of being alive. It sounded to Ava as though Rose knew God as a friend. Over time, Ava made a surprising discovery. Great Aunt Rose was quite possibly the happiest person she had ever known. 
But how could that be? What did she have to be happy about? She never married. She had no children. She had no one to keep her company except that creepy cat. And she had a hard time doing simple things like tying her shoes or walking upstairs. When she went to town, she wore embarrassingly big, bright hats. But people didn't laugh at her. Instead, they crowded around her, wanting to talk to her. Rose had been a school teacher, and it wasn't uncommon for former students now grown up with children of their own to stop and chat. They thanked her for being a good influence in their lives. They often laughed, and sometimes they even cried. As the summer progressed, Ava spent more and more time with Rose. They went on long walks, and Ava learned the difference between sparrows and finches. She picked wild elderberries and made marmalade from oranges. She learned about her great-great-grandmother who left her beloved homeland and sailed across the ocean and walked across the plains to be with the saints. Soon Ava made another startling discovery. Not only was great-aunt Rose one of the happiest persons she knew, but Ava herself was happier when she was around her. The days of summer were passing more quickly now. Before Ava knew it, Great Aunt Rose said, it would soon be time for Ava to return home. Though Ava had been looking forward to that moment since the day she arrived, she wasn't quite sure how she felt about it now. She realized she was actually going to miss this strange old house with this stalker cat and her beloved Great Aunt Rose. The day before her father arrived to pick her up, Ava asked the question she had been wondering about for weeks. Aunt Rose... Why are you so happy? Aunt Rose looked at her carefully and then guided her to a painting that hung in the front room that had been a gift from a talented dear friend. What do you see there, she asked. Ava noticed the painting before, but she hadn't really looked at it closely. A girl in pioneer dress skipped along a bright blue path. The grass and the trees were a vibrant green. Ava said, it's a painting of a girl. Looks like she's skipping. Yes, it's a pioneer girl skipping along happily, Aunt Rose said. I imagine there were, were many dark and dreary days for the pioneers. Their life was so hard, we can't even imagine. But in this painting, everything is bright and hopeful. The girl has a spring in her step. She's moving forward and upward. Ava was silent, so great Aunt Rose continued. There is enough that doesn't go right in life. So anyone can work themselves into a puddle of pessimism and a mess of melancholy. But I know people, even when things don't work out, focus on the wonders and miracles of life. These folks are the happiest people I know. But Ava said, you, you just can't flip a switch and go from sad to happy. And perhaps not. And Rose smiled gently. But God didn't design us to be sad. He created us to have joy. So if we trust him, he will help us to notice the good, bright, and hopeful things of life. And sure enough, the world will become brighter. It doesn't happen instantly, but honestly, how many good things do? Seems to me the best things like homemade bread or orange marmalade take patience and work. Maybe thought about it for a moment and said, maybe it's not so simple for people who don't have everything perfect in their lives. Ava! Do you really think my life is perfect? There was a time when I was so discouraged I didn't want to go on. You? Ava asked. 
And Rose nodded. There were so many things I wished for in my life. And she spoke as sadness entered into her voice that Ava had never heard before. Most of them never happened. It was one heartbreak after another. One day I realized that it would never be the way I hoped for. That was a depressing day. I was ready to give up and be miserable. So what did you do? Nothing for a time. I was just angry. I was an absolute monster to be around. Then Rose laughed a little, but not the usual big room filling laugh. It's not fair, was the song I sing over and over in my head. But eventually I discovered something that turned my whole life around. What was it? Faith? And Rose smiled. I discovered faith. And faith led to hope. And faith and hope gave me confidence that one day everything would make sense. That because of the Savior, all the wrongs would be made right. After that, I saw the path before me wasn't as dreary and dusty as I thought. I began to notice the bright blues and the verdant greens and the fiery reds. And I decided I had a choice. I could hang my head and drag my feet on the dusty road of self-pity. Or I could have a little faith. I could put on a bright dress, slip on my dancing shoes, and, slip and skip down the path of life, singing as I went. Now her voice was skipping along like the girl in the painting. Aunt Rose reached over to the end table and pulled out her well-worn scriptures onto her lap. I don't think I was clinically depressed. I'm not sure you can talk yourself out of that. Paj, I sure had talked myself into being miserable. I had some dark days. But all my brooding and worrying wasn't going to change that. It was only making things worse. Faith in the Savior taught me that no matter what happened in the past, my story would have a happy ending. No matter what happened in the past, my story could have a happy ending. How do you know that, Ava asked. And Rose turned a page in her Bible and says, it says right here, God will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. Great Aunt Rose looked at Ava. Her smile was as wide as she whispered with a slight quiver in her voice. Isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever heard? And it really did sound beautiful, Ava thought. And Rose turned a few pages and pointed a verse for Ava to read. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Such a glorious future, Aunt Rose said. I get swallowed up in the past or present things that don't quite go as we planned. Ava furrowed her brow, but wait a minute. Are you saying that being happy means looking forward to happiness in the future? Is all our happiness in eternity? Can't some of it happen now? Oh, of course it can. Dear child, now is part of eternity. 
It doesn't only begin after we die. Faith and hope will open your eyes to the happiness that is placed before you. I know a poem that says forever is composed of nows. I didn't want my forever to be composed of dark and fearful nows. I didn't want to live in the gloom of a bunker, gritting my teeth and closing my eyes and resentfully enduring to the bitter end. Faith gave me hope. I needed to live joyfully now. So what did you do? I exercised faith in God's promises by filling my life with meaningful things. I went to school. I got an education. It led me to a career that I loved. Eva thought about this for a moment and said, but surely being busy isn't what made you happy. There are a lot of busy people who aren't happy. How can someone be so wise and so young, Aunt Rose asked. You're absolutely right. And most of those busy, unhappy people have forgotten the one thing that matters most in all the world. The thing that Jesus said is the heart of his gospel. What's that? It's love. The pure love of Christ, Rose said. You see, everything else in the gospel, all the shoulds and musts and the thou shalts, they really just lead to love. When we love God, we want to serve him. We want to be like him. When we love our neighbors, we stop thinking so much about our own problems and we help others to solve theirs. That's what makes us happy. Great Aunt Rose nodded and smiled, her eyes filling with tears. Yes, my dear, that's what makes us happy. The next day, Ava hugged her great Aunt Rose and thanked her for everything she had done. She returned to her family and her friends and her house and her neighborhood, but she was never quite the same. As Ava grew older and she often thought of the words of her great Aunt Rose, Ava eventually married, raised children, and lived a long and wonderful life. And one day as she was standing in her own home, admiring a painting of a girl in a pioneer dress, skipping down a bright blue path, she realized that somehow she had reached the same age as her great aunt Rose was during that remarkable summer. And when she realized this, she felt a special prayer swell within her heart. And Ava felt grateful for her life for her family, for the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, and for that summer so long ago when great Aunt Rose taught her about faith and hope and love. Whosoever that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Come unto me, All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.